1: The first day of school creeps ever closer and with it, uncertainty for so many working families, educators and child care providers. We get an update on this constantly changing situation. I'm Melissa Davlin, Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Beth Oppenheimer, Executive Director for the Idaho Association for the Education of Young Children and Boise School District Trustee, joins us to discuss the current landscape for child care providers and educators in Idaho. Then, Senate President Pro Tem Brent Hill discusses legislative working groups created in response to Governor Brad Little's COVID-19 emergency declaration. But first on Thursday, Governor Little announced that once again, Idaho did not meet the criteria to advance past stage four of reopening Idaho.
2: We are seeing increased spread in Ada, Canyon, Twin Falls, Bonneville and Kootenai counties. The rise in confirmed cases in those areas is very concerning, but it is not the only metrics by which we make decisions in our coronavirus response. Our goal all along has been to slow down the coronavirus spread. So our healthcare facilities, where's my chart? Uh, Director Jepson's on my chart. So our healthcare facilities aren't overrun with too many patients at once. We're seeing increased hospitalizations in certain parts of the state, but statewide, our healthcare capacity is holding. We're not where we want to be with our coronavirus situation what situation in Idaho. But we have many things in place to get us where we need to be. We've increased testing, contact tracing, the availability of PPE for healthcare workers, businesses and schools. But the one thing that will dramatically slow the spread of coronavirus is for every single one of us to wear a mask.
1: Healthcare capacity may be holding statewide, but Regionally, hospital leaders across Idaho have expressed concern about the coming weeks as Idaho continues to see exponentially rising cases. And it's not clear whether available ICU beds in Magic Valley will help if those in Treasure Valley are full. In public comments submitted to the Southwestern Public Health District, St. Luke's Health System said, It's experiencing a dramatic growth in COVID-19 hospitalizations, hitting an all-time high of 100 on Monday. Canyon County's test positivity rate is now at 20%, and it has the fastest-growing rate of infection in the state, as well as the second-highest number of total cases. As of Thursday, St. Luke's had just one vacant ICU bed at its NAMPA facility. But on Thursday morning, Southwest Public Health District, which covers Canyon County, declined to put a mask mandate in place. During Thursday's press conference, I asked Governor Little how he expected anything to change without any action from state or local governments.
2: The evidence I'm getting back from some of these areas where they don't have mask mandates is the uh, percent of the population's wearing masks is going up. We all know what's taking place in a lot of the uh, retailers, both large and small, about uh, uh, implementing, uh, from a private business standpoint, a mask mandate. All of the, and like with Betsy's question, the the collective volume of evidence, uh, behavioral change, I think is gonna help. But at some point in time, uh, if, if people don't voluntarily do it, a mandate uh, as, this health district did here is is very important. Uh, the critical thing for for our coronavirus working group is always this red line statewide. That's what we're worried about. And if that's jeopardized, uh, something may have to happen.
1: Later that day, the Panhandle Health District Board voted to mandate masks in Kootenai County. While the vast majority of in-person testimony was against masks, the Coeur d'Alene superintendent, Dr. Steve Cook, had written to the board to ask them to consider the mask mandate, saying the continued spread of the virus at its current rate will jeopardize in-person instruction this fall semester. The safe reopening of schools, especially in Idaho's most populated areas, is on the minds of parents and educators alike. And for so many families, child care is inextricably linked to those considerations as well. On Friday, I spoke to Beth Oppenheimer, Executive Director for the Idaho Association for the Education of Young Children and Boise School District Trustee about the state of child care in Idaho and how it's tied to considerations for reopening school buildings. Thank you so much for joining us today. To get started, can you give us the state of childcare in the nation and in Idaho
0: right now? Sure. So the state of child care, unfortunately, we are on the verge of collapse with this industry. The child care system has been hit very hard with the COVID pandemic. Uh, if you remember, Idaho was not mandated to cha- uh, to close child care like many other states did as everything hit. And so our governor actually wanted to keep child care programs open to be able to serve Essential workers. I say other essential workers because childcare is essential. Um, other essential workers, such as healthcare workers, grocery store clerks, clerks, etc. But what happened was, as childcare programs tried to remain open, a lot of families were uh, at that time working from home, so they were pulling their children from childcare which led to very low enrollments for our childcare industry. And this is an industry, uh, they're all small businesses and they rely on that income coming in. And so many of them were forced to close because of low enrollment and also because of preventative measures.
1: Any idea about how many in Idaho have had to close since the beginning of this pandemic?
0: Uh, yeah, the data on that is um, a little iffy, but w- at one point we were tracking in the very beginning March and April, and at one point we had over 300 programs throughout the state that had closed, again, due to um, low enrollment or due to preventative measures. And there were already childcare
1: deserts in the state of Idaho where working families had trouble finding care for their children.
0: Absolutely. The U.S. Chamber Foundation did a report on Idaho, ironically released it um, the very end of February. And that report indicated that um, most of Idahoans live in a childcare desert. So about half of our states, our families are living in a childcare desert, which means that they can't either find or afford high quality childcare for working families. Um, also at the time, the U.S. Chamber report indicated that in good times, the state of Idaho is losing close to $470 million, $9 annually due to the lack of affordable quality childcare. And those were in good times. So um, I can't even imagine what it will look like through this crisis and on the other side of it.
1: Do we know if there are regional disparities in those deserts? Is it easier to find childcare if you're in an urban area versus a rural one?
0: You know it's interesting you would think that it would be harder in in rural communities which it is but because of the population in places like Boise and Idaho Falls they we also have childcare deserts just simply because we have more more people and the childcare industry it's very very difficult to run a childcare business.
1: It, what are the factors in the childcare deserts in Idaho why is it so hard for some of these families to find childcare?
0: Uh, because they don't exist. Because to the childcare industry, these are small businesses. And to be a childcare provider uh, takes a lot of training, it takes a lot of business sense. Um, and it's a very, very difficult industry. You're dealing with um, very young children, mostly birth through five, but um, some serve school aged children as well. Um, And they, typically childcare industries, they uh, run on very slim margins. So it's a very difficult from the business perspective. Uh, So it's tough to go into that industry.
1: So this already existed in the best of times, and now we are certainly not in the best of times as a state and a nation. Let's talk about the stresses facing working families right now who are trying to decide what to do with their children. This certainly compounds the issue of figuring out whether to keep kids at home or send them to childcare.
0: Absolutely, well what we're seeing is parents are struggling with this every day and we're seeing this in our childcare industry. Enrollment in childcare programs still remains very low. Um, A lot of families are still working at home, Um, but what happens is um, families are trying to balance working and caring for their children. Um, You know this all too well. Uh, You know, many uh, mothers are getting up at four o'clock in the morning to get a few hours of work in before the kids get up and then they're navigating school and they're navigating caring for their children. And it's just completely off balance. And some parents are are scared to send their children back to childcare because of fear of uh, risk. Uh, also, families who have lost their jobs, um, they simply cannot afford the cost of childcare at this time. So it's its this whole dynamic, it's very complex, and, and it's impacting our childcare industry, it's impacting families, and it's especially impacting working mothers who oftentimes take the brunt of this.
1: I love to talk about that disparity because not having childcare still in our society
0: disproportionately affects working mothers more than it does men. It does. Uh, you know, women are oftentimes seen as the caregiver of, of families, but we also know that more women are working, and so they really are trying to balance. Um, Navigating all of it. In addition to that, the childcare industry, in and of itself, over 90% of childcare providers are women themselves. And so some of them have children of their own and trying to navigate running a business, operating uh, this childcare uh, industry, and then also caring for their children as well.
1: So these closures not just they they don't just affect women who have their children in childcare. They also affect the business owners if they can't afford to keep their business running.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And and what we know is that um, other industries rely on childcare so that we can get working families back into the workforce or keep them in the workforce. We know that a lot of our business industries oftentimes have a hard time. Recruiting and retaining a qualified workforce. And some of that ties to the lack of affordable quality childcare within their area.
1: Yeah, I, I want to talk to you about daycare child care worker safety, because just among my friend group, I know of three facilities that have had to close because of employees who have tested positive. And while it's not clear where they contracted the virus you know that they were interacting with not just children, but also their fellow employees. And so how much of a concern is this
0: for uh, industry workers? It, it, it's a huge concern. And our childcare providers are doing everything that they can to um, ensure that the environment is safe. Um, most of which all ca- has increased their cost to running the program. So a lot of them are looking for PPE, Um, supplies they're very difficult to find and they're seeing that the cost of those supplies to keep the environment within the child care program safe, sanitized, finding masks, finding cleaning supplies. I mean, no one can find wipes at this point, right? Um, And so looking for that, and they're constantly having to clean. Um, And it's putting a tremendous amount of stress. And also they're looking at group sizes within their child care programs. Well, now they have to hire additional staff to be able to manage the lower ratios for the families. Um, It's it's really difficult for them. They They're struggling uh, both from keeping their business afloat because of lost revenue, but also the increase of cost in terms of making sure that those environments are safe and healthy and sanitized for children and families. We've talked a lot about the
1: problems. Are there any potential solutions on the horizon?
0: There are. Uh, We are... uh, just like um, lots of other business industries have had taken advantage of the PPP um, or other financial uh, grants that are coming in or loans, uh, the Department of Health and Welfare received $20.6 million in April uh, directed at child care. And the department put together grant opportunities for child care programs to apply for funding just to keep them stabilized through this crisis. Um, as what I know now is that the department has only expended about 5 million of that 20.6 million. They are getting ready to uh, release a second round of funding. Uh, when all of this came out, though, it was PPP. It was small business grants. It was all these things. And the, the child care providers a lot of them were scared to apply for this funding because they didn't know if they were going to be able to sustain this business and the fear of having to pay back some of these grants or loans that were offered. Uh, The childcare dollars were specifically just grants, but there was some confusion around, would they have to pay those back or would they not? So we're hoping this next round, there will be more clarification. And our hope is that they will get these dollars out the door and into the pockets of providers to help sustain their business so that they're ready when we come on the other side of this.
1: (laughs) You know, we can't talk about childcare as my son is actually sitting right next to me because he is not in daycare (laughs) right now. We can't talk about childcare without also talking about school reopening in person and the different dynamics that that creates for uh, you know the needs of both children and working parents. And you, of course, are a member of the Boise School District Board of Trustees. Uh, you You have a lot of considerations on your plate as you're thinking, you and the entire board are thinking about whether or not to reopen in person. Mm-hmm. On August
0: seventeenth. It yes. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, I kind of have my feet in both the child care and the K through twelve. Uh, but but it's really challenging and, and it's super complex. Um, you know, with, with schools navigating how we're gonna open, how how we're gonna do in person or online, child care has a tremendous uh, impact and all of this a lot some of our child care providers that we're talking to are thinking about uh, how do they create a, a classroom for school-aged children and remember that these child care providers um, they're trained in early childhood education they're not necessarily trained in K through 12 so if a family if schools are not um, uh, available in person and working families have to have some sort of child care um, what does that look like for the childcare industry? And I always, always look at this through the lens of, um, what about the single mom who's a nurse who has a first grader, and she is going to need some sort of childcare. So as we look through the complexities of um, opening schools online, we have to think about um, our vulner- vulnerable populations as well as uh, families that that need some sort of environment outside of the home, uh, to To be able to go to work,
1: as the August 17th opening date approaches, and it's as a parent who has a child in this district, it's coming up pretty quickly. You know, I sat in on a Central District Health meeting on Tuesday in which a pediatrician uh, predicted chaos if we continue at the same rate of uh, exponential case growth in Ada County and we have schools reopening in person. And I wanted to get your reaction to that and the potential for multiple school school closures in this first month.
0: Sure, Um, like I said, it's very complex. And I I can say from the Boise School District uh, level, we are thinking about first and foremost, the safety, of our children and our teachers and uh every, every single minute of the day that is what the administration is doing to to figure out how we best keep our our teachers and our children safe. Um, but again, we've got vulnerable populations that um, need some sort of out of the home care or education. And so we're thinking through that too. It, it's a balance of risks, right? It's, it's we've got, there, there's a risk of, of having children in classrooms. There's also a risk of having them not in a classroom. And so, trying to navigate the complexities that come along with that um, are very difficult. And, you know, I, I, I can't say it'll be perfect, but we certainly are doing everything that we can to make the right decision for all children and families within the district.
1: And as of right now, there is still a decision pending. You
0: have an August 3rd special meeting to make that final decision that's right so on August 3rd uh, the school board will get together with the administration and we will figure out what will happen two weeks later on August 17th Um, I wish I could tell you what I knew that what that was going to look like but as you know this situation is changing every single day and we're keeping close attention to that. And and again, our goal is to make sure that our children and our teachers and um, everyone is as safe as possible and everyone has uh, the ability to get the education and the care that they need. Well, and I know that you
1: aren't alone. School board trustees around the state and nation are in the same boat. We will keep an eye on the situation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. While some local school boards are waiting to make their decisions, the legislature has started discussing potential policy changes that would, among other things, give lawmakers more say if and when the state faces its next extreme emergency. On Friday, I spoke to Senate President Pro Tem Brent Hill about the legislature's working groups, what his priorities are, and whether he would have done anything differently. Thank you so much for joining us today. Can you give me a rundown of the working groups?
3: Uh, sure. Let me just explain maybe first uh, what a working group is. Uh, from time to time, we put together interim working groups or interim committees, if you want to think of them that way. And the purpose is, is to study issues that need to we need to go more in depth than the time that we have during the legislative session. So we use... Uh, the summertime to get public testimony, to study certain issues, to uh, do research, and and so forth, so that we usually ask these working groups to come back to the legislature the following January when we go back into session and make some recommendations to the legislature, or at least give the legislature some alternatives. And so that was the purpose of these working groups. Uh, We, uh, as we closed out the session on March 20th, we were just barely getting into uh, this uh, COVID-19 problem, or at least starting to understand what the problem was. And so uh, we did not provide uh, for for some of the things that uh, ended up coming through. Uh, as we uh, have gone over the last few months so so we set up four working groups Uh, the first one was for education Uh, education uh, needs some flexibility as you know they've received some federal funds they are they are going to uh, have uh, along with everyone else a share in the uh, budget cuts that the governor recommended to everyone and uh, and so They need flexibility to take those federal funds and and other sources that they have and put them in those, fill up the holes that may have have occurred as a result of the budget cuts. And that flexibility really isn't in statute, and so that's something we need to look at. And it may be something that we need to address before the school year begins, and so uh, we may have to look at a special session in order to do that. That's part of what we're trying to determine is can we get by without a special session on that particular issue. Uh, The second working group was for uh, our judiciary committees. Uh, There's been a lot of talk about uh, should we limit the liability that a business um, has to have, or even even a nonprofit organization or a school, uh, if they are following the protocols and someone ends up getting sick, should there be some limited liability so that someone can't just sue that uh, business or that school, uh, even though they're following necessary protocols if, if, if a customer or a person gets sick. So that's, uh, that's the second one. Uh, the third one has to do with uh, our joint finance appropriations committee, putting that together. Uh, we received uh, $1.25 billion from the federal government and uh uh, we have ways to handle money that we received from the federal government, government during the interim, but this was a lot more than we've ever received. So are there, are there ways that we ought to be monitoring that? What is the legislative role in, in that kind of thing? Uh, the last uh, committee has uh, probably a, a pretty heavy uh, load, and that is uh, the, our state affairs committees, uh, of which I am a member, and we had a meeting last, uh, last Monday, and um, we spent our time talking about elections, the election dates, the process. As everyone knows, uh, the primary election process was much different than what we've had in the past. It was all done uh, with mail-in ballots. Uh, We had no precincts, uh, you know, no voting places open on on election day. What are we going to be looking at for November? We need to look at that. We uh, had Phil McGrain come in from Ada County and talk to us. They have uh, the largest uh, population there. And uh, are there some things we need to look at statutorily in order to prepare for that? Uh, Also, uh, we've been talking for a long time about should there be a constitutional amendment to allow the legislature to call itself into session? where now the the Constitution requires that the governor makes that call of whether he wants to have the legislature come in. Uh, this is not new with this particular, uh, you know, this pandemic. It's something we've been talking about for a long time. Uh, maybe this will give us some teeth that we uh, actually, uh, you know, try to tackle that issue. And, of course, any constitutional amendment would go to the people for a vote to see what the people think about that.
1: You mentioned education spending as a potential need for a special session. If the legislature were called back right now, what would other priorities be that you feel need to immediately be addressed?
3: Well, the things we see that might lead to a special session, and again, this would be with the governor's consent. We're not working around the governor or against the governor. We're working together with him. We talked to him Wednesday about it, uh, some of the things that might require a special session. Again, the elections may We may need some statutory changes uh, to uh, allow things to be handled differently than what we've done in the past. As you know, the Secretary of State State and the governor made that call on their own in consultation with the rest of us, Uh, but uh, there may be better ways to handle it now uh, that we're into this, and so that may require a special session. Uh, Constitutional amendment would not. You know, So that, that would be something we would talk about at the next legislative session. The limited liability may require a special session. If you're trying to get schools open and they're worried about the liability that goes with it, that may be something that uh, would require a special session. I, uh, I add a caveat onto that in that uh, the federal government is also looking at that liability issue, and they may handle it uh, even before we get to it. In, in, in which case maybe we won't need to, to deal with that. And then, uh, again, the, the, the education. I think those three things are the, the the most likely to create a need for a special session because they just can't wait until January.
1: You know, your your caucus uh, has mostly been understanding of the governor's actions, but there, have, there are some Republicans who have been very critical of the way he handled the extreme emergency. You know, as you're looking at everything that he has done. If you were governor, would you have done anything differently?
3: Well, you know, it's always nice to look in hindsight and say, uh, I I imagine he would have done a few things differently if he'd have known then uh, what he knows now. Uh, I think he did an an extraordinary job with with the information that he had, with the science that was available at the time, and, uh, and with the, the graveness of the decision that he had to make regarding public safety as well as economic uh, uh, protection, uh, I think he, he walked the line uh, very well. He received criticism from both sides, uh, both those who thought he didn't uh, care about enough about public safety as well as those who felt like he wasn't caring enough about the economy. Uh, I don't know if that's an indication that he walked the line down the middle where he should have, but. Uh, uh, I think I have no criticisms of him. In fact, as we talked to uh, many of our colleagues about, well, you know, why why didn't he have a special session? Why didn't he call us in to, to get uh, some input? Um, most of them don't feel like they would have necessarily done uh, things a lot differently. Uh, most of them just wanted to have more say in what was being done. But uh, not a lot of criticism for what he actually did, uh, at least not uh, not in our body.
1: All right. Senator Hill, thank you so much for your time.
3: Always a pleasure. Thanks, Melissa. Have a great day.
1: Thanks for watching. For updated numbers and analysis throughout the week, make sure you're following Idaho Reports on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to our daily audio updates on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player. See you next time and stay safe, Idaho.